Hello and welcome to the last episode of the first season of In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director, and over the last three months, I have shared a selection of excellent short stories that I've produced and directed. Following each, I've had the immense privilege of sitting down with the author. We've talked about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Today is the last episode of this mini-series, and so I'm sharing my own short story that I've written over the duration of this podcast and has been inspired by all the amazing people I've talked with. For the interview portion of this episode, I'll be joined by Samantha Rose Panapinto from the very first episode that I recorded. And this time she'll be grilling me. So please sit back and enjoy my short story from my blanket fort in New York City. A Crown of Posies by Alicia Merricks. The phone rings into the darkness, illuminating the empty passenger seat as Neve drives through the darkened, barren landscape of Dartmoor. If she squints, she can almost see one of the giant granite tours standing tall and proud in the darkness, keeping her company. She's not used to being alone. She was part of a pair, a gruesome twosome, one of two peas in a pod, Bonnie and Clyde. And now she's a single, solo, just one. Growing up was inevitable. It was never a question of if, but when. And now the moment is here. Neve doesn't think she can do it without Alexis. They had been dreaming of the future for years, playing Operation at five, dressing up in oversized scrubs for Halloween at ten, poring over anatomy books for fun at 14, quizzing each other for exams at 16, and again at 18. And now? Now Neve has to make the drive to university all alone, because Alexis has no future. It had never even occurred to Neve that things could change, that she could go from top of the class to that girl whose friend died, from a best friend to a nobody. With the steady rotation of the wheels and the calming thrum of the engine, Neve drives comfortably into the misty nothingness. Driving in the dark has never scared her, not since the moment she passed her test and was legally given permission to roll down Alexis's driveway, tooting her horn triumphantly. So now, driving to see Alexis one last time before she goes to St Andrews and leaves everything they shared behind... She revels in watching the moors stretch out around her, the darkness engulfing the car and the tendrils of mist curling around her lights on full beam. The phone buzzes again on the passenger seat, its bluish hue throwing its light as if to highlight the seat that should be filled. With the persistent buzz breaking her silence, she glances over just to see that it isn't her mum freaking out. This is the first time they'll be apart from each other too. She instantly wishes she hadn't taken a peek and tries to swallow down the lump in her throat. She ignores it. She imagines the moor reaching out around her, imagines what could be in it. Who? 
once, when they were camping out in her back garden, jumped up on sugar and no sleep. Alexis had told her the story of the hairy hands of Dartmoor. She had pressed the torch ghoulishly up to her chin, and both sets of eyes glinted with the fear and adrenaline coursing through their tiny bodies. The legendary disembodied hairy hands were the accused for so many car accidents on this stretch of road, the only way that locals could explain the many tragic crashes ever since the rise of the car. When they were younger, with parents taxiing them to and from each other's houses, they would squeal for them to shut the windows tight and to lock the doors, just in case the hairy hands would loom out of the darkness, take the wheel and steer them to their deaths. But as they got older, they would inch the windows down, a little more with each year, tiptoeing the line between fear and triumph. Soon those feelings became one and the same. Neve doesn't remember when it changed, but she remembers why. It was that competitive spirit that drove them forward, challenged each other, tethered them together. Nobody else cared as much as they did, worked as hard as they did, deserved to succeed and get out as much as they did. Had. She takes in a deep breath and winds the window all the way down, letting the cool night air slap her face, inviting in the hairy hands. At least if they claim her, she won't have to find out that she isn't good enough without Alexis to push her. She adjusts herself in the seat, her newly visible collarbone irritated by the belt strapping her down. You have to eat, her mum had repeated all summer, always accompanied by that beautifully characteristic crease of her brow, the type that only comes from treading the hardest path in life. Alexis would want you to look after yourself. It's true. Alexis had been her champion. Who needed a tribe when you had a best friend that was more like a sister? Who needed a boyfriend when you had a bond so strong that it met every single need? Alexis never let Neve forget who she was. She pushed her to be better, to achieve each and every single goal to the point of perfection. Alexis was everything. She was always the truly talented one of the two of them, just had to breathe and the right answer danced off the tip of her tongue. The way she'd recited details from medical textbooks sounded more like poetry. For Neve, it was about doing the hard work. She was eager to fight for any inch of the limelight that fell naturally on Alexis, eager to leave behind a town full of nobodies to become a somebody. At first, the resigned, beer-laced words from Uncle Pat were all she had needed to fuel the fire. You'll be just like us one day, echoed around her dreams. But now, without Alexis pushing her, reminding her how much she can achieve, she honestly doesn't know if she's cut out for a life in medicine. That's why she had screeched to a halt only two hours into her drive up to Scotland, Fear turning the car around to drive the two hours back, finding herself seeking out Alexis one last time. Don't apologise to me for being a total badass. We have to be ruthless, Alexis had warned her when Neve outquizzed her for the third time in a row. You want to stay here forever? If we want to be surgeons, we have to be better than everyone else, even each other.
I'm going to do whatever I can to be on top and you can be my number two. And when I'm on top, you can be my number two, Neve had retorted. And that's exactly how it went. Sometimes hard work triumphed over natural talent. Sometimes innate ability would leave hard work trailing in the dust. It didn't matter as long as it was one of them. Until it did. Driving up to the graveyard, Neve feels the hesitation rising in her. Spooky graveyard in the middle of the night seems like a bad call. But she takes a beat and steals herself. This is goodbye, after all. Tomorrow she should be up in Scotland, unpacking her things and starting the next chapter. Leading the life they'd planned out for each other. Alexis would laugh if she wimped out now. The gravel gives way under the wheels of her overloaded car, packed to the brim with everything from her childhood room that is taking this next step with her. When she brings the car to a halt, she pauses with it, watching the wind play with the full-bodied trees planted like sentinels at the graveyard gate. Her phone buzzes again, and this time she taps furiously to reject the call, irritated at the interruption now she's here. Frustrated at the people who still seem to cling on despite her attempts to leave them behind. She pulls on the soft St Andrew's hoodie that Alexis had bought for her birthday, even though at that point they hadn't been accepted onto the course. She bought a matching pair because she was so sure they'd be making the trip together. Neve nearly leaves the phone in the car, wanting to escape its persistent buzz. But having watched millions of horror films... She knows not to go up the metaphorical stairs alone. She's not stupid. She shoves it into her pocket, gets out of the car, and folds her arms tightly against the wind. She can feel October coming, threatening to push the summer away. And after the summer she's had, she welcomes the cold like a cool pillow at night. She's over all the damn pity. It's not hard to find the small plot of land nestled among the decaying gravestones. She finds Alexis's newly placed granite plaque reflecting the glow of the diffused moonlight. When everything else in the graveyard is dimmed and dulled with age, of course Alexis would be vibrant in death. Sitting down on the gravel pathway in front of Alexis, Neve doesn't know what to do. She contemplates talking to the static lump of rock, but can practically hear Alexis's laugh reflect off the gravestones at the mere thought of it. Looking around, she tries to gather inspiration, but just finds her fingers trailing in the grass, interrupted by the curve of the rockery behind the markers of loved ones past. She gives up, lying back in the grass next to the headstone. So, what now, genius? She mutters to the night. She waits for an answer, a sign. When you're dead, you're dead. Nothing. Gone, Alexis had said with such conviction that Neve hadn't even thought to question it at the time. But now she wonders. She hopes that Alexis is up there watching her. Yes, probably laughing, but watching. Neve thrusts her hand to the sky, flipping off the universe, just in case. She can almost see the mist rearranging to make a crude gesture right back at her. Of course, they've thought about it countless times. You don't consider becoming a surgeon without thinking of death, 
the two go hand in hand. But if Alexis were here now, maybe Neve would challenge her. When she thinks about it, really thinks about it, consciousness is kind of incredible to her, completely inexplicable. Would she even believe in it if she wasn't experiencing it herself? It's just as easy to think that all of this is happening in her head as it is to think that none of it is real to start with. Like that movie her Uncle Pat loved, with Neon, Nemo or something. With so much she can never know. Who's to say there isn't something beyond this? She'd never have said it out loud, not when Alexis was alive, so she certainly wasn't going to say it to an inanimate stone now. But briefly, she entertains the idea of giving up. She entertains the idea of who she could be, what she could do. But it's blank. Nothing else fits in the gap that is her future. She looks up to the sky and says, I could be a bum on the sofa like Uncle Pat. I'm sure he'd save me space. She feels a drip splatter coolly onto her cheek, then another on her nose, small and pathetic raindrops. But she nods to the sky in acknowledgement. Okay, okay, surgery it is. Maybe I'll even go for neuro now. If anything was going to provoke a sign from the heavens, that would be it. Cardio was her path. Neuro belonged to Alexis. She shuffles uncomfortably and seeks out the gravel that has escaped from the path and is now digging into her back. She breathes into the night, enjoying its balmy late summer air with the freshness of falling rain. What if I can't do it? She says, small and quiet, voicing her doubt unfamiliar to her. Can't do what? A low, uncertain voice says from a few yards away. Neve sits up urgently, feet poised to run. Her eyes squint into the darkness and finally make out Jamie, standing only five feet away, his hands buried in his jeans pockets, grey hoodie up over his head. She looks closer. He looks bad. Like hasn't slept or eaten in weeks bad. The kind of bad that is still walking around and going through the motions even though he gave up weeks ago. I called, he says plainly, accusingly. Your mum said you left for uni yesterday. He eyes her like she's a deer ready to dash into the woodland, uncertain if he'll hold her attention. He never had before. Neve tries to remember what he looked like before when he was filled with laughter, when he would look at Alexis from across the room and just smile at her very existence. He was always the third wheel in their relationship, but they haven't seen each other since the funeral, letting everyone else believe it's too painful, but individually knowing they have nothing to say to each other. You look like you haven't slept, he says, concern creasing his brow. A laugh escapes Neve's lips. Of course she hadn't slept. They never slept. Everyone would say, you've got to sleep, you won't be able to think straight. Everyone but Alexis. She'd slip Neve the caffeine pills because she understood what it took. At the end of the week, they'd compete with how large the shadows under their eyes were. No problem was too big. They knew that they could work through it and find a solution. They just needed the extra time. All those hours were wasted with their eyes shut. Until for Neve, 
even the extra time wasn't enough, no matter how hard she worked. I don't sleep that much either, he offers. She glares at him sceptically, frustrated at his presence as she had always been. Even when she's dead, he won't leave us alone, she thinks bitterly. He was always a bit of an enigma to Neve, totally unremarkable. He did just enough to get by and for the life of her, she couldn't see what Alexis had seen in him. Surely he'd known Alexis would finish it when they went to university anyway. But here he stands, like a puppy whose elderly owner had passed. He steps closer, a small posy of flowers clutched in his hand. Neve bristles at the gesture. She hadn't brought anything. What use are flowers when they're just going to die? Alexis would have laughed at them. Carefully, Jamie sits down and brings his hands, still clasping the flowers, to his knees. They sit in silence for a couple of minutes, Neve noticing his sharp intakes of breath that come to nothing each time he fails to say what he's thinking. The fragrant, damp grass fills the air as her hair grows heavier with the rain. Jamie looks at her earnestly and finally settles on the words to say. When I close my eyes, he mumbles, I just get flashes of the bridge, of her body crumpled on the rocks down there. I can't sleep. I know, Neve blurts, desperate to stop him opening the floodgates. Me too. For ages, it was just that, you know, the rocks. I was so blasted that none of it was clear. He shrugs guiltily. I don't even remember what the last thing she said to me was. Neve blinks back tears, remembering it exactly. Jealous that he fumbles for the details and she fights every moment to push them away. She can remember every millisecond of Alexis falling. Every single detail of the cry she left in her wake. Every single millimetre of her skin remembers feeling Alexis brush against her as she fell backward. Every word. But then, Jamie continues, The other night, I remember seeing you both. Her sat on the wall of the bridge, you standing opposite her, laughing. The heart in Neve's chest pounds through her ribs as she hears the disbelief that edges his words, the sinister undertone. Even though he's smiling, she hears it. But you weren't laughing. You were crying. No, Neve stammers urgently, the nervous energy seeping from her pores. We were laughing. No, you weren't. You were crying, and I remember it so clearly now. My therapist said it might happen, that our brains protect us from trauma. Until we're ready. He studies Neve carefully, determinedly, his eyes darting intently between each feature, trying to catch any hint of her thoughts. Had he been Alexis or Neve, he would have stepped back to see the whole picture. But up close, focused on Neve's expression, he doesn't see the rock coming before it cracks into his temple. She grits her teeth, crack, heaves a breath, 
crack. Stands in the silence. Her hand grasping the warm, sticky rock hangs loosely by her side and the adrenaline leaves her body in floods. You cheated, Alexis had said, spitefully, her eyes narrowing. I saw you swap out the test papers. I wasn't going to say anything, but since you got top marks and I only got 96. She had let that hang in the air, let the accusation swarm around Neve, and had enjoyed watching the tears fall. Don't get me wrong, I admire it. You did what you had to do to be the best. I didn't think you had it in you. Her voice was painted with sincerity and empathy. But as she sat there, drunkenly swinging her legs, she had vindictively let the paint slide away. But now I have to do what I have to do to be the best. You can't tell them, please, Neve had begged, watching her whole world slip away along with the illusion of her best friend. Alexis, please! If you're going to cheat, don't be dumb enough to get caught. The words had landed as intended, hard and cold, accompanied by a smile. Neve's jaw had set tight, her skin shrouded in adrenaline. She had taken one resolute breath, slowly reached out her hand and pushed. Now she looks down at Jamie's limp body with the same calculated interest she had been consumed by as she had looked over the bridge wall and down onto the rocks. She had been looking for a sign, looking for something that told her she was ready and that she still had what it took. Alexis had answered. The wind rustles through the trees still standing witness by the graveyard gate and she bends to pick up the small posy of wild flowers laying discarded beside Jamie's unmoving hand. She carefully arranges each one of them around the headstone, creating a crown of flowers for her friend, each one marked with a small smudge of crimson. Goodbye, Alexis. Hey everyone, my name is Sam Panapinto. I'm going to be interviewing the wonderful Alicia today, talking about the whole process of recording this podcast and her final short story, A Crown of Posies. Thanks so much for coming on and doing this for me, Sam. I feel it's like very nice full circle. You were the first guest on the podcast. Um, So yeah, I'm really glad that you're here to do this with me. Me too. I'm so excited that you thought of me and that I get to be here to just close out the season of this amazing podcast that you created. Thank you. (laughs) So I think we should jump right in and talk about something that we were talking about just a Mm -hmm. moment ago, which is um, the placement of your stories and um, how where you are as a human being has influenced where you're setting your stories. So as a British person who um, is living in the United States, how that has affected where you choose to set your stories and the challenges in setting 
um, your stories in either the UK or in the US. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because my writing life is very much grounded in the US. It very much started in New York with my wonderful critique group um, and kind of they really, really shaped me as a writer and also um, the world of writing. So the sort of business of writing as well. Um, and a lot of the stories that I read are often set here as well, just because the market that I'm receiving is here. I grew up in the UK. Um, my British school experience is not at all like an American school experience. Um, and so especially when I'm writing for young people, I find it hard to kind of fully immerse in either world sometimes. It doesn't matter what story I put together. Um, there will be someone who reads it and says, well, this is very American, but it's in a British setting. Or there's someone who'll say, um, well, this is very British and it's in an American setting. Like my uh, my novel at the moment, Sam, I remember so many of your comments throughout the whole thing were Britishism. Britishism? What does this mean? <laughs> um, and so I kind of really felt like a kind of a tug between them and I think it kind of really works for a lot of young uh, characters as well that sort of tug not knowing quite where you fit it kind of, so I feel that very acutely sometimes but I think most of the things I'm writing right now especially like I said for young people are definitely going back into um, sort of my British school experience my teenage experience and trying to find a way to update that and when I was working in the UK I worked with a lot of young people and um, so I had a slightly more updated version than like 2000s school to like think about otherwise everyone would be playing like snake on their phone or something <laughs> so what was that like so you wrote you have your novel that I beta read um the Unfairness mm -hmm. of happiness which is excellent agents take note <laughs> and then you're working on your YA thriller which takes place mm -hmm. in the UK right yeah yeah and then your short story crown of poses also takes place in the UK yeah so what did that feel like writing um in your homeland after writing a whole novel that um and kind of trying to train yourself out of using those Britishisms and and write for a more American audience I mean it was very relaxed it felt very very just easy um, and very easy with the setting um, because Dartmoor is a very specific place. It's very sort of Wuthering Heights. It's very barren. There's like bracken and big rocks, these granite tours. And so it's very easy doing that. Um, and just being able to write about like genuinely my experience of going to university, it was as simple as that. It was as simple as knowing that this was how school. So I didn't have to like double check everything. I didn't have to go, wait, what's like fifth grade or what's this? I could be like <laughs> year seven, although that's not in this this story at all. But yeah, it, there is a definite um, a feeling of safety being able to write that so sits in your experience, especially when writing something that's quite contemporary. Um, yeah, so it was it was nice to do that. And it kind of just, it, it allowed me to bring in sort of the, the legend of the hairy hands. Like that's something I legit grew up with when I was school age. And like, it was this legend of these horrible disembodied hairy hands that lived on uh, Dartmoor. There's this genuine stretch of road that like, it freaked me out every time we drove past it. But it was, yeah, it was very nice kind of writing in that barren landscape that just felt so so much like home to me as well I love that I love that you had a chance to write so much in a place that felt more familiar for you that mm. sounds like it felt really good yeah it did it did so 
Talking a little more about short stories in Mm. general, if we think back to the very beginning of the season of this podcast, you had said that you were initially kind of drawn to short stories and had never written one before. So that Mm -hmm. was what initially inspired you to create this podcast. So what, what was it like? What, what surprised you about writing your own short story? What just, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so it always amazed me when I read a short story that really landed right with me. That It amazed me that, like, how did the author put so much character and context in such a small moment? How did they do that? And so I was generally quite scared of short stories. I, Whenever I thought of an idea, it kind of rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. And, you know, it became this huge, great, big thing that needed many chapters to, like, unpack. Um, and I knew a few people that were writing short stories um, and not just as a an exploration of craft, but genuinely because they wanted to write a short story. Um, you are and were always really good at generating lots of ideas that all fit really nicely into this uh, short story um, format. And so it was really interesting to me how concisely you did it. And like I was still satisfied at the end of it. So that was really interesting to me. Um, And then writing one, it very much came down to the idea of what did I think would fit in a short story. Um, And kind of one thing that you had said to me was that it's about a moment of change or about a moment that really impacts someone and they could change, but maybe they don't. And that in itself is a really significant moment. Um, And so I really thought about that and I I wanted my character to be sort of in crisis somehow to have this moment of doubt in their life. And then how did I sort of make a big idea because I like big ideas and how do I make it small and actually how do I make it fit into a short story without feeling like, you know, this should have been a novel. So yeah, that that was a really interesting, interesting way through that. So how did you settle on the idea for Crown of Posies? Were there others that you were considering or did it come to you and that was it? Yeah, so I had sort of three ideas I was playing around with. Um, One was the start of a, a novel that I had written a while ago didn't amount to anything Um, and it was very very personal and so that kind of I realized worked really well as a short story but then did I want to like did I want to dive into that at this point was was a big question Um, and so I decided not to I decided that my first short story maybe not so personal not so like digging into sort of you know old wounds or anything like that I wanted to try and really explore character and context Um, and so there was another one as well that was at it was kind of uh, way more sci-fi than I typically write and I really liked that idea but I was just like, oh my God, sci-fi is so hard. Like, how do you like build these worlds? And I was like, wait, wait, I think I'm going too big. Yeah, a new genre and a new story type is a lot. I mean, right. I I was maybe, maybe uh, going a little bit too deep. And so I settled on Crown of Posies because I really, I mean, so much of my work is around the crisis of growing up. Um, and the daunting, horrible feeling it is to be a young person or anyone of any age, <laughs> but to be to to be a person who is terrified about what's coming next. But when you're young, you don't have the context that adults have, and so it's this really, really deeply terrifying moment. Um, nearly everything I write has death very, very thematically woven into it. Um, 
I didn't realize that until I started writing this uh, short story about this little little psychopath. And so I thought, you know, these are themes that I'm very, very aware of. And as soon as I thought about it, I was like, oh, and it could happen on Dartmoor. And I was like, oh, and the scenery. Um, and I hadn't settled on which short story I was going to do until about five episodes into the podcast. And so like the influences from like, say yours with such a strong character, I was like, okay, I really want to get this like voicey character into it. Um, and then Rosemary's has this like amazing scenery. And I was like, okay, Dartmoor, this is, I want that scenery. Um, and then each episode kind of added so much more to it and added so much more to the way I was thinking about crafting my short story. And so it was kind of a combination of all those things. And also, I think I was writing a short story that I knew I was going to have to speak out loud. No one else on the podcast got that privilege. Um, and so I was able to write something that I thought that actually my voice could probably lend something to as well. Um, and so that's how I, I, I settled on A Crown of Posies. I, I like dark stories. I like not very happily resolved endings. I don't like people coming away from my stories being like, oh, and they lived happily ever after. So yeah, even if there's a sense of hope, it's confusing because, you know, you're rooting for her, but then are you? Because she's awful. Yeah. I love that confusing hope. So I'm hearing the the way that the experience of doing this podcast shaped the type of story that you wanted to mm. tell. Did you notice patterns throughout with each of the authors you talked to and each of the stories you read? Um, yeah, like I felt that initially I'd thought, you know, setup is going to be sort of as short as possible and you're going to want to be able to give as much context as possible. But I was actually really surprised at how much time was spent on setup and context within all of the short stories. And it was really, really, um, it was really encouraging because I think that was one of the things that I was so scared of was like, how do I create a realistic rounded story with such short space and then actually I realized that the context and setup you had to be more careful about the way you crafted things like the things your character said they have to also deliver context as well it can't just be an emotional line from a character which you know you can really dwell on on during a novel um and so it, it was it really made me look at how everyone had crafted that context into their story um and then also and you'd said this, and it was beautiful foreshadowing in the first episode. You were like, it's this change in a character's life. And so then I looked at all these other stories as they were coming, and I was like, oh, okay, so this is about this change, and it's about how they come out the other end. Um, a story that wasn't featured on the podcast, um, the character didn't change at all by the end, but that in itself was so fascinating because there was this huge moment where it was going to take them either way. And the fact that they didn't change was so poignant to the rest of their life, to the rest of who they were going to be. And I didn't need to know anything else from that point. That's why it was such a good short story. And there were all these moments, uh, like, for example, in yours, I loved how it was a huge idea, big zombies, post-apocalyptic, you know, that. But it was about a small moment and I loved that. And so I was thinking, okay, how can I have small moments but big ideas? Um, and that's what I think so many of them did so well. I was scared because I thought it needed to be so poignant. It needed to be so, like, earth-shatteringly huge. And sometimes those things that change you the most are actually quite small and they happen maybe nobody noticing. And 
but then it's you're changed and so I was really interested in sort of how to fit that the big into the small um and still make it land in a huge and impactful way um and I think that all of the stories in this had those moments they all had big shifts for the characters um and it and that really kind of inspired me to kind of really lean into a big story um and and kind of make it its own limited moment that didn't need to go anywhere else yeah and I think you did that so beautifully with a crown of posies like we get all this we we get such a strong sense of where the the protagonist is coming from and then it it just like escalates so quickly and we Mm. get this big moment of just like oh okay and (laughs) um I love that I thought you I thought you struck such a good balance in your story it was almost like kind of the opposite of what you're talking about where instead of being a big idea in terms of like the setting or the setup Mm. um and then being a small moment yours was kind of like the setup and the setting was kind of every day and then the the moment of change and that that catalyst moment was the big thing Mm. a crown of posies went through a couple of different iterations it went through maybe being a bit paranormal it went through kind of being um sort of us knowing that you know she had killed alexis from the start and kind of, so I, I I really wanted to find that moment where the story gets flipped on its head, where it's not quite what you expect it to be. Um, and so in the first, like, what, I think five pages, I wanted it to be a story about grief. I wanted it to be a moment where you lose something so completely. And Neve was, like, she was grieving her best friend but also the life that was promised to her the life that uh, when you're a teenager you have no idea that is going like can be altered so significantly um and I really really wanted the the listener the reader to like really relate to her and kind of feel that grief and feel for her and you know she's a snarky horrible teenager as well like she says some pretty mean things but I still wanted this thread of understanding and really sympathizing and having that uh, common experience of of grief and having lost something. And then to kind of like twist it on its head at the end where you realize, well, she is the cause of what she's lost. And she's actually doubting whether or not she can continue without her because of her own action. And the morbid sort of sense of, oh, yes, I can carry on because I'm still willing to do whatever it is to stop like my secret coming out and for me to can carry on and get out of here amazing so when when you actually sat down to start writing what mm. did you anticipate being the hardest part and is that actually how it played out i anticipated the characters being the hardest part um so with this one weirdly like kind of i just had the idea i had the image of the graveyard i, I had that much earlier than anything else but when I actually sat down to start writing it I just put hand to keyboard and just started typing I wanted to know what the 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 surroundings were like um and this is when I kind of got tendrils of mist and like I was really just enjoying the language and kind of painting the scene um and so but then when it came to putting the characters down so it's really interesting it it came out in like maybe five different sections of writing I sat down to write that moment and then I stopped and then I wanted to write like this idea of like having how people see you 
change you. So from going from a best friend to a nobody, that sort of idea. And so I wrote a whole paragraph on that idea and the solo just one. I'd written a whole short story about like how it is to be a part of a group of friends of like five people and always being one on your own, never being part of the two. And so I kind of really, all these different ideas kind of collected to make this really really weird dynamic between Alexis and Neve and kind of actually Jamie ending up being the one in that whole scenario um and so the numbers was really interesting kind of how dynamics and friends fit together and then when it came down to it like actually writing the dynamic of the characters was actually really easy it was so much easier than I thought because I just remembered like my silly little toxic relationships when I was a friend when you were so reliant on each other as teenagers like I had one friend who we were probably not friends for the majority of our relationship yet even when we were in the middle of having fallen out we would call each other and we would chat on the phone for hours despite the fact that at school we weren't friends And so actually when it came to putting it on paper, like I really, I just kind of let rip. And there was a lot that was cut out, obviously, of them actually having conversations because I think they only have a conversation at the very end. That was easier. I think the thing that was the hardest thing was knowing what to add and what to take away. I think that was the hardest thing. And like it it had gone through a couple of drafts before you saw it. Um, because I needed my twist to only be realised by one person so I could see what the mistakes were. Um, And then I didn't change it much. This is possibly the only moment when, other than clarifying and doing, and and kind of maybe shifting a couple of things around a bit and adding in a couple of lines, it was the first time when I thought, I really don't want to take it somewhere else. So it was the first time a story has really felt like it couldn't go anywhere else for me. I love that. I feel like that's... Part of the beauty of the short story form as well is that since there, since it's more compressed, you can really, there's not as many elements to think like with a, with writing a novel length thing, there's like, okay, there's this subplot and this subplot. And it's like, it can go twisty turning in all these different ways. There's all these things that could potentially explore, mm. but I feel like there is, yeah, maybe there is more space in a short story to just be certain as the author of like no this is the story and I can change absolutely these smaller things you know, yeah to clarify or to to enhance in this way but like this is this is the heart of the story yeah and I think that really speaks to the the conversation of art and work for a writer um, and I think that it's a really nice for writers to actually invest in short stories not just as a, a an exercise of craft but as an exercise of looking at your job as a writer rather than just relying on you know the the muse to strike and those sort of things and really having to sit yourself down and kind of write something and make it finished and and really respect it as a short story rather than just like oh I wanted to exercise my character skills and it does all that it does all Mm -hmm. of that but really kind of thinking about it as a whole piece I think it's a really healthy thing for a a, a writer to kind of explore because it lets you think about writing as your job as your business as you know having to produce work and then the novel can be you know long and agonizing as they all should be (laughs) yeah (laughs) so write some short stories y'all yeah (laughs) I found it incredibly rewarding as well just as a whole I didn't think I could do it I, I've said for ages, I don't think I can write a short story. 
I said it so many times, yet here I am. I have written a short story. I spoke to lots of people. I listened to lots of stories. I read lots of stories. And actually, that's what being a writer means. It's figuring out how everything fits into the whole title writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, if you think you can't write a short story, then you're wrong. Uh, I'm sure you can. (laughs) So, okay. So if someone were to do that and Mm -hmm. say, use this podcast as a curriculum for figuring out how to write short stories, um, someone who's never written a short story before, but wants to try, what would you want them to take away from listening to this season? And yeah, what would you want them to take away from listening to this series? I love that. That's great. Um, This is my teacher brain. (laughs) Yeah, you have a great teacher brain. It's interesting because, I mean, I didn't get huge piles of submissions, though um, it, it was a lot of stories kind of came to me through friends or through other writers or writers' workshops. Um, and what I'm really surprised at is that each one came with such a distinct look at something very specific. Each writer came with something that they were so specifically great at. And as I was looking back at the season, I was trying to figure out sort of what it was like I had been inspired by by each writer. And so I've actually written it down. Each episode, I felt ex- was exemplary work for a specific thing. So for example, Sam, yours was so good with character. Like that voiciness that you are so good at producing on the page and so unique every single time. I think that short story and the and the conversation that we had is a great look at how you can start putting that character into your work. Rosemary's has this wonderful depiction of the scenery of Iceland. Like people were listening to it without it saying it's Iceland, but knowing exactly what the scenery was, it was brilliant. Uh, Barnabas de Kirk, his was so, it settled in the ambiguous. Um, And it was very good at not giving everything to the listener. And that's such a strong, strong uh, lesson to learn. Um, when not to give everything and when you can let your reader your listener be a bit uncomfortable uh, then Katie uh, Ziegler has was this beautiful use of language use of uh, sort of these stretching beautiful paragraphs and this really 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 uncomfortable look at um, the the loose tooth I mean it freaked me out when I was when I was listening and reading this one um, but she speaks brilliantly about sort of short stories as well and how language kind of really inspired her. Um, and then there was Elizabeth Dwyer. It was a short one. It was kind of, it's probably a bit more flash fiction than it is short story. So I might have bent the rules a bit. Um, but that was just this beautiful exploration of existential crisis um, in three pages. And it was so relatable. I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been this woman sort of staring into that painting. Um, Scotty, uh, he, his short story, his scary, scary short story. I mean, I think it was one of the ones that maybe influenced the mood of mine the most because, wow, the mood he created on the page and then kind of inspired me to create this soundscape around it. That is horror on a page. He did that brilliantly. Um, and then there was Tina, um, and again, her big sort of science fiction world, and how do you get a big world into a small space? I think she did that so well. 
Um, and then there was Phoebe, whose idea was just this beautiful metaphor for sort of growing up, feeling othered. Like, it was a stunning piece. And also third-person writing. Oh, my goodness. Not third-person, second-person writing. Mm. She nailed that. It was beautiful. And then M.G. Lockhart's, like, uh, use of wordplay and using the surreal and, again, kind of having that realisation, that that sort of big penny drop moment where a character kind of realises what is happening to them. But I thought that was masterful and also just, like, it was funny. Writing humour. Um, so, yeah, if you were wanting to use the podcast as a, a guide, then, like, each episode very very easily will help you focus on an aspect of writing which really helps round out a, a story. Um, I hadn't necessarily planned that. I I, want, <laughs> I wanted them all to be different. Like I wanted the stories to all be different because I wanted it to be interesting to produce and kind of to really dig into the theatre of all of them. But I didn't realise what it was that had like pulled me into each story so completely in, until uh, looking back at the season and kind of seeing how different they were and how it kind of did bring itself into like this form of being a guide and how to put together a short story. Amazing. Oh, now I want to go back and re-listen to everything with, with that lens and take notes on what everyone's an expert at. <laughs> Um, so this is another kind of teacher type question. So what questions do you still have about short stories? And if you were going to do just hypothetically a second season of In Short, the podcast, what would you want to explore now that you've already written your own short story? Mm, maybe something that looking at it as in inspired by um, really, really famous short story writers. Maybe that would be interesting. Um, maybe different cultures. I think that would be really fascinating, kind of looking at short story outside sort of the Western lens. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, something like that, something that really kind of shows you sort of the grand scope of short stories. Um, because what this has shown me more than anything is that Actually, a short story can be made out of anything. Mm -hmm. It's just about you, the writer, who who adds the lens, who adds the shaping, who adds... You can make anything a short story, um, but then whether or not... Yeah, the structure and the format and, you know, all those tools that make you a, a good writer, those are the things that kind of make it a good short story rather than the idea itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned earlier how you... Knowing that you were going to record this story for a podcast, you wrote it... Mm -hmm. keeping in mind that you were going to speak it in your own voice. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that process of recording. Were you directing yourself? Um, what was that like? I was not directing myself. No, <laughs> not at all. Um, I would not trust me to direct me because I think you need that outside ear. And I think that really yeah. is rooted in my background in theatre. Um, I am used to working with a director when I'm when I'm performing. Um, I'm used to having that outside eye and used to working collaboratively on that. So absolutely not. <laughs> uh, that would have been very impressed. It seems very difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, my my director was uh, a longtime friend and collaborator, Kiz Crosby. Um, she uh, specializes in theater. And I really wanted the theater director to to kind of do this because it was interesting to me having all of the Whenever I'm working on an audiobook, um, I 
really, really think about all those questions that my theatre training makes me think of, like, what is the motivation? What is the context? What is, like, what do they want? All these different things that you think of as a writer as well um, really inform sort of how you get the subtext into the voice. Um, and so I'm I'm now, like, immune to my own voice like I don't I didn't have that instant like ugh, I hate my voice because I've listened to like me blather on for many many episodes now and I'm infinitely better when I'm, I've got something to read <laughs> um and so I really really wanted it to be first person because I was like that will be easiest to do sadly my story would not comply um and it had to have that distance so that you had that surprise so that you had that like distance from the character that you can kind of really you know analyze her crazy ass as much as you want mm-hmm. um and i think the first person really kind of would have ruined that I, I i'm not sure it would have had the same impact at the end whether i could have hidden it necessarily um and so when we me and kids sat down to record it she asked me um she asked me what the point of it was and i was like okay big question i was like well structurally i need no one to know that she's a psychopath until the moment it's revealed i can't let anything in my voice betray that um and so if there's anything that comes out sounding a bit dark and a bit like moody like we need to we need to lighten it a bit we need to get a bit more in that and she was like okay cool um and then she also asked about the characters um which i mean I should have known I was going to have problems with voicing characters because that's always where, like, untrained people have problems with, uh, like, recording their story. Um, And Alexis and Neve were very easy for me, Um, but Jamie was so hard. Voicing Jamie was challenging because, I mean, he's kind of a structural character, which I don't encourage anyone doing, but he he was structural in that he needed to be there for Neve to realize that she can finally do it. She needed that conflict. And so I had put in character for him, lots of things about him not like just being happy, just not having any ambition, wanting to stay in his hometown, you know, those sort of things. Um, and so trying to put a voice in him which wasn't like a huge stereotype again like I've said before on this podcast that was really challenging and so Kiz did this really cool thing and this is the theater person and her coming out which is great she was like for each character figure out where like the root of their voice is like your narrative voice is very sort of like in your chest it's very sort of pronounced and proud and so then she was like well with Jamie it's more in his throat he's tired he hasn't slept for weeks like he's he's having his own sort of crisis so think about that coming from your throat and what it is to be like kind of uncomfortable in your throat um and then the mum was like more in your like solar plexus this like sort of warmth radiating from like that sort of motherly part of you um which was fascinating and like I hadn't thought of for my characters at all and or anything that I was directing um I had always come at it from like well think about the feeling think about whether they're anxious let's put angst in there let's put this and this is actually a really useful technique thinking about the physical can really really change the voice that was really interesting for me um and I also just I I made so many mistakes I think I'm literally the person who made more mistakes than anybody on this podcast like you should see my marked up manuscript it's got lines all over it from where I was like nope redo that so there's this interesting thing when you're directing an audiobook in that so much of it is 
partnering your interpretation with the narrator's interpretation and then what is on the page. And if the narrator does something that you don't like, you have to think, okay, is this detrimental to what's on the page or is this just another interpretation of it that will actually work for a listener as well? And so you have to balance that and you have to make very split second decisions to kind of make that collaboration work. So that was really interesting being on the other side um, because I, I, I think I now have an, just another understanding of how when I work with narrators, um, I, I have just that little bit more of a, like an empathy with them going through it. And I mean, narrators are amazing. Like the trained ones, so professional, like they just crack them out so quickly. And so now I'll have the understanding that it did not come as easily to me as I, I thought it might having been around it. So yeah, it's such a practiced skill. So let's talk about what it was like to hear your own voice in the recording. And then you said you're used to it, so it doesn't have that initial cringe aspect to it. But an, <laughs> an area that stood out to me was there's just this glee in your voice when you talk about the hairy hands <laughs> and that ghost story that, yes, just like in that little laugh just then. Um, and you're clearly just reveling in the spookiness and the dark darkness of it. Um, where is that coming from? Like, is that you as the narrator? Is that you as the author? Like, talk about, did you notice that? And uh, where is it coming from? It was so much fun to narrate. And it was so much fun to get that character into even the narrative voice, just so that you can really hear the glee in those moments. You can hear sort of talking about the hairy hands and the excitement of them, like with the torch pressed up against their, uh, you know, against their chins and really painting those pictures. One of the things I found like working with narrators is the ones that are the most successful are the ones that really paint that picture and they enjoy it. They enjoy every single word that they say. Um, and so that was something that was in, I think, in the back of my mind when I was doing it. Um, as I really wanted to kind of get the sort of glee of the two little girls sharing that moment, that sleepover, trying to scare each other, that sort of giggling glee. I really wanted to kind of get that across. Um, I didn't know necessarily that it was happening when I was doing it, even though I was feeling it. But it was really nice to listen back and and finding that it had come across and it really kind of you can hear the smile mm -hmm. when you smile in audio all those sort of technical things that you don't anticipate making a difference but they do all those cues that are there even though you can't be seen De yes it definitely came through <laughs> great <laughs> and the other part that stood out is at the end at that moment where we're really getting more into Neve's head and seeing that shift where we're realizing that she's not as perhaps innocent as mm. we would have thought. Um, there's this real slowing down and like spreading out of the words and pauses that makes you just hang on each piece of it. So for you with the experience of recording full length audiobooks as well, is that something that there is more space to play with in the short story format? And like, what are some of the differences in terms of things you can and can't do in each format? I mean, that, yeah, pacing is a hugely important part of an impactful audiobook. Um, those moments where you're indicating to the listener that they need to stop and listen, those moments that you're kind of communicating without kind of being obvious. So you're speeding up, you're speeding up, you want them to really, really, really pay attention. You're going really fast and then you stop and then you take a breath. 
So all of those things are really important when you're putting anything on audio. Um, just the same, again, just the same, you use the same principles when you're putting it on stage or you're putting it on a film. You need these ups, these downs, these ebbs, these flows. It can't be as simple as just, um, just reading it. It has to have this element of performance in it for me. Um, and so the pacing was really important for me in this. And I felt like one of the things I always say to any narrator um, is pay attention to the text. Look at that punctuation. It is your best friend. If the writer has been doing their job properly, then you can see the short sentences. You can see the long, like beautiful paragraphs. You can see all of that. Um, and so what you're trying to do um, when narrating is you're trying to put that across without that visual. Again, you're trying to you're trying to make up for all the things that are missing. I mean, I would love to have so much more time to direct an audiobook. Um I think audiobooks, if I could direct them the same way that a theatre director would direct and where they'd do rehearsals um and that sort of thing. Even if it was a couple more, that would be amazing. Um you could like do a rehearsal for um sort of voices. You can do a rehearsal for like those big moments. Um that would be delightful. Um you can't is is and and recording this we took like an hour and a half recording it so we took way more time than you'd normally do in an audiobook and I have for all of these I've really wanted to kind of blur that boundary between audiobook direction and theatre direction um and and kind of really play with that um and so the the most successful audiobooks are the ones that feel so spontaneous but have probably actually been rehearsed a lot by the narrator. The desire to kind of like perform and be sort of a little bit outside of yourself um, is really, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to kind of see what your voice can do. <laughs> so I think we are at the end of this episode and the end of this long journey that has been the podcast. Um, and so thank you so much, Sam, for coming on and making sure that I didn't have an awkward interviewing myself experience. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. Everyone who has listened each week has meant so much to me. I'm so thankful for each and every writer who inspired me by sharing their short stories. Samantha Rose Panapinto, Rosemary Melchior, Barnabas D. Kirk, Katie Ziegler, Elizabeth Dwyer, Scotty Milder, Tina Asanipour, Phoebe Lowe, and M.G. Lockhart. And thank you to Teddy Merricks for the music and logos. Without you, this podcast would have looked and sounded very different. Each piece of music for each individual story really made the audio version perfect. I'd honestly love it if you could take a second to show the podcast some love. Each share, each review and each recommendation makes it that much more visible in the vast podcasting world. It would mean so much to me and maybe would have a second season. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. <laughs>